Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who was a third-round draft pick of the Kansas City Royals in the 1981 Major League Baseball draft. He made his Major League Baseball pitching debut five years later in 1986, went on to have a 17-year Major League career. He won the 1994 Cy Young Award, five-time All-Star, led the Major Leagues in strikeouts each season from 90 to 92, a two-time 20-game winner, a five-time World Series champ, his 8-3 and career postseason record, and his 2.12 ERA in World Series simply reinforced his status as one of the premier big-game pitchers of his era. He pitched a 16th perfect game in baseball history in 1999. He currently serves as a color commentator for the New York Yankees on the Yes Network. He, along with Jack Curry, wrote a fascinating Absolutely fascinating new book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. It is a thrill to welcome David Cohn to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, David. Thanks. I appreciate it. Good to be on with you. You know, I have to tell you that I was really, literally blown away by this book. As a parent who spent many, many hours watching my son get pitching lessons from former major league pitchers, having covered baseball for the last 11 years, I thought I knew a lot about the art of pitching. This book to me, proved I know nothing. And one of my biggest takeaways from it is next time in a press box sitting there when a reporter just simply says, God, this guy can't throw strikes, I'm going to take out my copy of your book and hand it to them. What made you want to write this book and really detail the art of pitching? Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And anybody who's got a Barry Lyons jersey, uh, you know, you're, you're good by me, so I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> you see some of Mark's other collections in his jerseys. Uh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, you know, Jack Curry's a great writer. He's a friend. Uh, he's a colleague now, and he's kind of a, a, a pitching nerd like I am. And we've, we've been talking about these issues for a long time, and it was his idea to, to put it down on paper and to try to do it in a book, book form and uh, – because it was Jack and there was such a trust factor and he was a friend, you know, I, I think I just dove in and said, you know, he was the right guy and, you know, we could peel back some layers and really kind of show you behind the scenes and the good, the bad, the ugly, the anxieties, the insecurities, everything that can go through a pitcher's mind. And like you said, sometimes the hardest time to throw a strike is when you have to right down the middle. You know, and it's so funny because you know right off the bat that this is not going to be your prototypical jock book because the dedication you wrote for your mom who understood regression to the mean before it was popular and for my dad who was my first and best coach. Regression to the mean, has, and you, you nailed it because you said it has many different layers. That particular line has many layers to it, whether it be statistical or psychological. What impact, what impact did your mom's understanding of regression of the mean have on your baseball career? Well, mom was great. She was there every step of the way. You know, dad was the coach, but, but mom was a coach too, and she was always in the stands. She was the scorekeeper, so she understood numbers. And she also understood slumps, and she always knew that you're never as bad as you think you are when, you, when you're going down or when you're in a slump, but you're never as good as you think you are when you're hot or when you're winning. So she had a, a very unique way of keeping me level, of uh, cutting me down a size when I thought I was uh, – you know, going too well or, or thinking too highly of myself. And then she always picked me up, too. She always knew. She, so, she always used this term, and I still hear it from the stands of my Little League games of, you know, throw strikes, David, throw strikes, and then you're due. You're due. It's okay. Your turn is coming. So, you know, that was 
my philosophical kind of upbringing. And, uh, you know, I still, to this day, I still think a lot about all the lessons that she taught me. Yeah, you mentioned your dad many times throughout the book. And for me, what makes this book so interesting uh, with the layers on it is that it seems like you are always in this constant state of contradictions. The way you navigate them all is fascinating. You mentioned how your dad was a disciplinarian, not quite Bobby Knight, but he was serious, and if you were going to do something, you had to do it right. But throughout your career, you seem to take issues with the authoritative coaches. So what made Ed Cohn such a good coach, while somewhat strict coaches like Royals coach Bill Fisher really got your back up and your stubborn side going? Yeah, it, it really is. I, I mean, you really hit you really hit the nail on the head right there. There was a, there are some contradictions and some dueling emotions throughout the book, and that's that's. I think I'm most proud of that. It's kind of real and raw and honest. And uh, you know, my dad also taught me to stand up for myself, and uh, that if I really believed in my convictions, that it was okay to push back. But at the same time, if if I threw temper tantrums in Little League or in some of the practices that he was coaching, he would kick me out of practice. He would send me home in front of the entire team. And he didn't want to be perceived as playing favorites to his son. But at the same time, you know, it was a unique combination of also being supportive. And after those practices I got kicked out of, there was a long talk afterwards, and there was a build back up. He always built me back up and made me understand how I was coming off emotionally and how that came off to my teammates and, and to the crowd and, you know, how uh, – how that could be perceived as, as you're, uh, you know, a little hothead or you're throwing temper tantrums uh, is not good for the team spirit. And But at the same time, he understood that that emotion drove me and that he didn't want to completely sort of, uh, you know, dampen it out. Uh, he, he wanted to allow me still some, some room to express myself. So there, there, was, there was room for both. There was room for the disciplinarian side. And there was also room for a stand-up-for-yourself side. The book introduction starts off with your perfect game and you having a conversation in the mirror in the bathroom of Yankee Stadium in the bottom of the eighth inning, which I found riveting. You're both confident, but at the same time, you're preparing yourself for failure. Now, AJ and I have spoken to so many players over the years, and they all talk about finding that silence and that laser focus that makes them see nothing but the ball as a hitter or the catcher's glove as a pitcher. But yet I got this vision of you in, in that Yankee bathroom with, like, the evil Bugs Bunny on one shoulder and the, the good on the other. How, did you, how were you able to quiet those internal thoughts of, you know, what would happen if you failed as opposed to getting the, the task at hand done? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, the problem that you have when, when you're in the middle of a perfect game or a no-hitter or something like that of a historical nature that – no one wants to talk to you. You know, there's superstitions, obviously, that I'm sure everybody knows about. Uh, nobody will look at you. Nobody will talk to you. And I was filled with anxiety. And the only way I could kind of get out that energy was to literally talk to myself out loud in the mirror in the bathroom at Yankee Stadium. And, you know, I shared that story with Jack Curry, and he said, we've got to put this in the book. This is just – I didn't think it was all that interesting. I thought it was kind of crazy. And if you would have uh, walked by me in that bathroom, you would have thought I was pretty crazy, too, but – the type of conversation I was having with myself, but it really was a battle of fighting off the negative feelings, fighting off the, the feeling of uh, worrying about how I would react if I blew it, if I hung a slider and the perfect game was broken up in the ninth inning, that, that I was worried about how I would react and, and, and fighting that feeling off and then getting back to that quiet place like you're talking about, about just simplifying, uh, concentrate on the glove, concentrate on the execution of the pitches, keep doing what you're doing, and, you know, that... that uh, that conversation kind of won over, but yes, there were some doubts, there were some insecurities, and the only way I could think uh, to, to alleviate it was to actually talk to myself out loud in the mirror. 
Yeah, it's riveting. The, one of the other things that blew me away was the way you describe pitching and how you would experiment. And there was a throwaway line in there where you mentioned the technology available today where pitchers can get their spin rate and that had you had that back in the day, you would have worked with various grips to get a higher spin rate. And when I was reading that, I flashed back to everything I was ever taught about pitching, and that is always about replicating the delivery, same arm slot, you know, same grip on the ball, tension, and, and things like that. So I'm wondering if you're already a successful pitcher and you start messing around with things to try and increase you know, spin rate, can you sabotage yourself? It's a great point. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, sometimes too much information is not a good thing, it, and it certainly depends on the, the individual makeup of, of each personality, without a doubt. Uh, not everybody could, could uh, use that information. But, you know, my point would be that sometimes what you think you're doing and what you're actually doing are two different things. Uh, you may think that you have the best grip or the best spin rate on, on whatever you're throwing, whether it's a curveball or a slider or even a split-finger fastball. You may think that this grip works. You may think that you have optimal spin rate, but there's always room for improvement. And there's, uh, I think, the, the example that Justin Verlander gives us, uh, maybe the preeminent pitcher of his generation goes down to Houston and improves by, with this technology, changes the grip on his slider, starts throwing different types of breaking pitches, and becomes much more effective. And not only the type of spin rate that he has, but the tunneling effect, uh, but being able to, to manufacture the pitches coming in on the same plane and looking at identical up until the last minute when the hitter has to decide to swing or not, uh, I think those two things go hand in hand. And seeing a guy like Justin Verlander towards the tail end of his career be able to do those sorts of things, to make changes, to change his grip, to improve his spin, to improve his tunneling effect, really had an impact on me. And, uh, you know, if, if it's good for Justin Verlander, then I think it'd probably be good for a lot of pitchers. If you just tuned in, we're talking to David Cohn. What also is great about this book is it also takes us on your journey. And for those that might not know this about you, you never played high school baseball. Your high school didn't have a baseball program. You played quarterback on the football team. You led them to district championship. You were also the point guard on the basketball team at Rockhurst. You played summer ball in the Van Johnson League, a college league, and did extremely well. And at 16, you reported to an invitation-only tryout at Royal Stadium, an open tryout for the Cardinals as well. Can you share with our audience how that felt, trying out for the team that you grew up rooting for in the stadium that you would go and see the team play, and then to be drafted by that team in the third round? Take us through those emotions. Yeah, it really was. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, the tryout camp was at Royal Stadium. So you're on a big league field, and there's 250 to 300 other players with you. And you think that maybe you're special, but you're not. Uh, the minute you get into that group of large players, you get maybe 10 throws, and a scout really gives you no feedback. It's it's an assembly line style of a, a tryout camp. and you really are kind of put in your place because you don't know how well you did. You, you just lay it on the line and throw as hard as you can and maybe snap off a couple of curveballs uh, as quickly as you can, and then, then you're done, and you, and you really don't know what's going on. So while it's a thrill at, at, at one point, it's also kind of uh, you know deflating at another because you see a lot of other talented players, and then you realize that you, know, that you might not be good enough. You know, that it smacks you in the face that, there's so many other really good players that have good talent that may never get a chance. And, and then you start that doubt again, and those insecurities come back in, and you wonder if, if you're good enough. And uh, it's, it's both. It was thrilling and kind of uh, deflating at the same time. 
And this really is warts and all, because you describe some of the mistakes you made financially, financially with your, your signing money, the purchase of your car. A lot of that had impact on you, you know, even you know, when you don't have that much money, the choices of food you eat during the minors and, and the added stress of, of that money. So you kind of really understand what it takes to make it to the major leagues. So it, that, I thought, was fascinating. You're in a Royals minor league system. And looking at those names now, with all the hype the Mets pitching staff has had these last couple of years, I would have to say that that Royals minor league system was every bet the equal, if not better. You know, Saberhagen, Gubazar, yourself, and Danny Jackson, you're all pretty much on track to be huge parts of the Royals rotation. You suffer that devastating injury to your leg, which sets you both back physically and mentally. How tough was it? to see those teammates that you were on track to make it with get there before you while you were rehabbing and you know that self-doubt that crawled into your head wondering if your leg would hold up once you got back yeah it's so true i mean uh, there, there were four 20 game winners in that group and we were all teenagers coming up together at the minor leagues and you know gooby was one of my best friends he was my roommate saber Hagen was right there with us all danny jackson uh you know, it was a great group of young pitchers, and it was so tough. I mean, I had a, I had an ACL injury. I blew out my anterior cruciate ligament on a play at home plate uh, when I threw a wild pitch. And you know, back in 1983, the, the surgeries to fix ACLs weren't weren't very uh, progressive, shall we say? It was a very invasive surgery. It took a long time to come back from, and it was on my landing leg. So I really, it took me a couple of years just to get the strength back in my leg, to get it rehabbed, and to kind of learn how to pitch again because it affected everything. My stride, the way I landed, you know, I almost had to land on my heel from that point on rather than kind of a more even plant when you land. So it, it was it was much more difficult than, uh, than I ever thought it would be, and uh, it really did set me back. And to watch those other guys go up and have success in the big leagues almost immediately. In, in 1985, the Royals won the World Series, and that's, I was supposed to be on that team. I was supposed to be there with Saberhagen and Gubazar and Danny Jackson. And, you know, and I, had to, I had to sit on the sidelines and watch while I rehabbed and then was stuck in the minor leagues for a couple of years trying to figure it out. So, yeah, that was, that was probably the low point in, in my minor league career to, to watch them win a World Series and they beat the Cardinals that year. And, and that I'm, still in, I'm still in the minor leagues trying to, trying to get my knee right. You know, and throughout your career, you had many guys who provided leadership and set examples in many different ways. With the Royals, you mentioned in particular Dan Quisenberry, as well as a player you idolized growing up in George Brett. What lessons did you learn from the two of them? Oh, so many lessons. I mean, Dan Quisenberry, the late, great Dan Quisenberry, obviously died tragically of a brain tumor in his uh, early 40s. Uh, he was such a leader, such a gracious man. Uh, you know, I was as goofy as they come. I'm still goofy and flaky and when I first got to the big leagues, uh, you know, I, I thought it was fun time. You know, I thought, wow, I'm a big leaguer. And I, you know, I could use that prestige uh, to, to actually uh, maybe even beat girls. And I remember one time during batting practice in uniform, really my first major league batting practice, I, I saw a, 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 a gorgeous girl over by the foul line. I went over and talked to her and gave her a ball, and I was trying to get her phone number. And Dan Quisenberry pulled me aside and gave me a long talk about uh, – you know, how I was perceived and how it was coming off once again. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't even aware of it. I thought it was fun time. You know, I thought this, this, was, uh, this was a chance to have some fun. And uh, he really almost in a fatherly way kind of told me, hey, look, congratulations on making it to the big leagues. But he said, this act isn't going to play. 
You know, you you need, you need to act like a rookie. You need to play the rookie role. You need to prove that you're trustworthy, that we can all respect you, and that we can all count on you. And that's how you stay in the big league. Getting to the big leagues is quite an accomplishment, but the more important thing is sticking in the big leagues. And in order to do that, you got to watch how you act. You got to you got to learn, and you got to you got to play that rookie role a little better. And I'll never forget that conversation that, that Quisenberry had with me. And of course, George Brett was great as well. George was very gracious to the rookies uh, in, in a time too when veterans could be pretty hard on the rookies. You know, back in the '80s, it was still kind of a speak when you're spoken to and play that rookie role. Uh, you know, and, and they could be pretty tough on you with hazing and talking down to you and being condescending. But uh, George was never that way. He always helped the rookies out. And in fact, he had Gubazan, Saberhagen live with him their rookie years. And, kind of showed them the ropes. So I couldn't have had two better guys than Dan Quisenberry and George Brett. I'm glad you cleaned up that story a little bit for radio, too, as far as what <laughs> yeah. went on when you went over to the, the girl. But then, well. I got the phone number. <laughs> yeah. okay. You didn't win the bet, though, but we'll leave that to the, the people to make sure they buy the book for that story. Um, yes. You get traded from the Royals, which is, is devastating, and especially for a guy who wanted to be a pitcher, wanted to be the center of attention, wanted to be the guy. You're on your home team, town team. You get traded. I mentioned Quiz and Brett as leaders you had in Kansas City. You mentioned Hernandez and Carter, who every Met fan recognized were team leaders. But you also mentioned two different guys and two different styles of leading. First off, Bobby O'Heater with you in a card game when you first got there. And second of all is a good friend of ours here at the show, Wally Backman, and how he calmed you after a, a bad game by leaving something at your locker. So could you tell our audience about those two leadership moments that O'Heater did with you and Wally Backman? Yeah, you know, Bobby Oita uh, was, was an old-school guy. Uh, he really believed in the old-school ways in terms of kind of beating down the rookies and testing them. They were constantly tested. And I had a really bad game. I think I, I gave up a grand slam to Barry Bonds. And then after the game, it was a getaway day. We hopped on the charter flight. We were playing cards on the back of the plane. And I mentioned something to Bobby about the card, card that he played. I think we were playing hearts, and he made a bad play. And I kind of, you know, I kind of chided him a little bit about the, the play he made in the cards, and then he jumped all over me and uh, you know, told me uh, how badly I had pitched and, and uh, that rookies, rookies need to, to know their role and that we, you know, we need to know that we trust you and uh, you're not proving yourself at all. And, and uh, you know, you need, you need, we need to know that we can count on you because this is a team that's built to win and we're going to the World Series. And, and uh, if you want to be a part of it, then you, you better clean up your act. And, you know, I, I took that as motivation. I, you know, and as a rookie, there's not much you can say to a veteran like Bobby O at that point. But it also motivated me, and it motivated me in a couple of ways. One, that I was going to do better. And another way that when I became a leader and a veteran, that, that, that maybe there's a different way. You know, and then when Derek Jeter was a rookie 10 years later and I was a veteran, that you know, we're going to go about it a little different way and try to teach them and embrace them and, and, and make them feel a part of the team a, a little quicker. And uh, and certainly that, that was a big part of it. And Wally Backman was great after one bad game, a really bad game. I think I gave up 10 runs. Still, I think, a record for a Mets starting pitcher uh, to this day. And the next day I showed up and there was a softball, uh, an actual softball in my chair and uh, a note attached to it that said, this is what your fastball looked like last night. Oh, no. <laughs> the minute I walked into clubhouse, Wally was over there waiting for my reaction. And then he came over and grabbed me and, and laughed at me and just made sure that he was picking me up, even though he was getting on me, and even though he was making, you know, it was a practical joke, he was making fun of me. He wanted to make sure that I loosened up, you know, that I didn't let it impact me and that it wasn't going to carry over. And 
I never forgot that. You know, Wally was great, and that he was very supportive in, in that regard. You know, it's interesting because you point to two things during your Met career as key moments in your career. One is an exhibition start, which occurred during the season against the, the Boston Red Sox. Earlier in the season, you'd been led up by the Astros. But here against the Red Sox, a great hitting team at that point, obviously, you're getting swing and misses from the same pitches that the Astros were, were hitting. And kind of a light bulb went off in your head saying, you know, you know, that particular day, the Astros just happened to hit that particular pitch but they were good pitchers, so you got to tip your hat, and you realize you can get batters out. That particular game also got you your first seat on Kiner's Corner. And during my research for my Kiner's Corner book, I actually had a copy of that episode. So I want you to give a listen to, to just this little part of the interview you had with Ralph. What about the first couple of uh, times out now? You really had a tough time the first start and also in the second start. Uh, did you lose any confidence? Did it bother you any? Well, you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. You know, you try not to let that stuff affect you. Uh, I know I can pitch on this level. It's just a matter of getting the opportunities to do so. You know, I've had some prime opportunities, and I haven't taken advantage of them, and I realize that uh, they're few and far between. So I really need to bear down and show what I can do on this level if I expect to stay. Well, you have a great curveball. There's no doubt about it. And you also throw that little slider when you drop down. We didn't know it as Laredo at that point, right. but, it, but it's interesting because AJ and I have had so many boxers on our show, and the one recurring theme is the first time a boxer gets knocked out and how their biggest challenge is getting that confidence, that feeling of invincibility back. You were so candid with Ralph saying that you'd be lying if those two bad outings didn't hurt your confidence. So how does a pitcher maintain the confidence? Forget about game to game, but inning by inning. It, you know, We've seen guys have horrible innings and then make that adjustment and we've seen guys have horrible innings and never be able to rebound from it yeah great great points great question i mean i think the lesson is is that the problem with pitchers is when they have bad outings or bad innings or or give up home runs is that it, it, it scares them away from contact you think you have to make perfect pitches from that point on and then you start nibbling towards the edges and then you you kind of exacerbate the whole situation and then you start falling behind in the counts, and you start walking batters, and things just sort of steamroll from there. And, and that Boston game, you know, that I, I pitched before that Kiner's Corner interview, kind of that was the light bulb. That was, you know what? You don't have to, to be afraid of contact. You don't have to make perfect pitches with every pitch. Uh, that You can still challenge hitters, be aggressive, challenge the strike zone, and that's the formula that works. Even if it does burn you sometimes, even if you do give up some home runs or you get – you give up hard hits and the batters are starting to tee off on you, uh, that you can't get scared away from that. You can't get intimidated by that. You keep making your pitches and you stay aggressive. And I, I think that's probably the ultimate lesson for any young pitcher to learn because most young pitchers come up to the big leagues and they think they have to be better than they were in the minor leagues. They have to make better pitches than, than they've already learned how to do. So to me, that was that was the ultimate lesson. And, you know, I remember a conversation I had with Catfish Hunter about that as well. And, if Catfish would give up a home run to a batter in the first uh, in the first at bat, he would challenge the guy in the second at bat almost with the same pitch to see if he could do it again. And it's that fearless mentality that a pitcher really has to have. That that is the toughest lesson for any young pitcher to learn. The catcher in that game happened to be Barry Lyons, and you know he's we, we have to shout out to Barry because he's celebrating his birthday tomorrow. So happy birthday, 33! He was also the catcher on Father's Day, 1988, when you took a no hitter into the eighth inning, and you credit Barry as the first 
catcher ever to thank you for shaking off signs, and it actually helped the two of you to be more in sync in the game. Can you explain how that, I mean, we see it here with DeGrom kind of wants Nito as his catcher. I mean, how important is that to be in sync and be in harmony with your catcher and your catcher to have confidence in what you want to throw? Yeah, that, that's uh, probably my favorite chapter in the book is about the pitcher-catcher relationship and how important that really is. And it goes so much further than just signal calling. It, it's about uh, understanding each other, about having a relationship. Uh, it's about reading body language. And Barry and I got to know each other very well that year and had several good games that, that particular year. He was the backup for, for Gary Carter in 1988. And, and that was part of the process. The first, that was one of the first games we pitched together. And uh, you know, we made that connection, and the fact that he was willing not to be offended when I shook him off, because some catchers are. And I talked about Jorge Posada and uh, his rookie year, one of his first years when he was catching me. He would, he would seemingly get a little offended when I'd shake him off, or he'd get frustrated by it, that we couldn't get on the same page. And I think a part of that is just getting to know each other, get, developing a respect for each other. And sometimes catchers need to be psychoanalysts. They need to allow a pitcher a little room to breathe because there's a lot of pressure on pitchers, especially starting pitchers, and you wait all week to start, and in the first inning, your week could be ruined in five minutes. So, you know, it's a, it's a very delicate and very important relationship, and I think Barry Lyons really uh, really showed me something when, when he was open and honest about, you know what, let's, it's okay to shake me up. Let's figure out what works, and let's work together quickly and so we don't disrupt the timing and the rhythm so a pitcher could work fast. And, uh, and, and get confidence that way by staying in sort of an attack mode and, and throwing strikes. It's interesting. I mean, there's so many different catches that you talk about. Even, you know, even forget about in the game. You mentioned how in a bullpen, you know, before the game, Joe Girardi kind of ticked you off just the way he was catching the balls, and you tell him to get out of there. So it's so important, even in the bullpen, for that catcher to be in sync. It's so many great things in this book. Um, the other key moment that you point to as a Met in your development as a pitcher is when you actually got hit by Atlee Hamaker's fastball, shattered your pinky while you were attempting to bunt. When you came back, because of the way your finger was reset and, and, and broken, you had more movement on your pitches. And, and, the, and you mentioned you know, three-finger Mordecai Brown. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, and this is how my crazy mind thinks, you see all these high school players now going for elective Tommy John surgery. You point to the fact that the way your finger was bent gave you a different grip on the ball and helped you. You, you take a look at three-finger Mordecai <laughs> Brown, but also Antonio Alfonseca with six fingers. I'm worried that kids are going to start breaking their fingers to get a better well, grip on the ball. That, that, I mean, that's, that's that's an overreaction. Is it? I mean, <laughs> the way things are going today, do you think that's an overreaction, David? That's funny. Yeah, it is funny. You know, actually, I had thought about that, and that, that's certainly not the advice I'm trying to give. That's <laughs> sure, but but it, it, I think it's a, the, the easier answer is to adjust your grip a little bit. What that allowed me to do was kind of off-center my grip on my four-seat fastball that made it kind of ride a little better through the strike zone. It gave me a little more life on my fastball, and that's where the modern technology comes in. Uh, with, with spin rate, you can actually test that out. With just a little subtle grip change, you might see some improvement in the life on your pitches or the spin rate, especially on forcing fastballs up in the zone. So without even realizing it, it just kind of forced me to off-center the grip a little bit and, and get just a little different spin on the baseball and give me just a subtle little movement on it that I really didn't have before. 
I think there's an easier way uh, to do that. You use the high-speed cameras rather than the hammer. And, and <laughs> yeah, I remember you know, Guy Conti showing me the grips that Pedro would use and, and the way he would throw his curveball, and it is also fascinating. But I spent a lot of time with you talking about the Mets. And while you won championships with the Jays and the Yankees, you appeared in the most games with the Mets. You had the most wins in your career as a Met. Your lowest ERA was with the Mets. You finished your career as a Met. So I have to ask you, why is the cover of the book you as a Yankee as opposed to a montage of all the teams? Yeah, we, we thought about that long and hard. And, uh, you know, I think uh, part of the process was is that we knew that the Yankees were going to help us promote the book and that obviously I work for the Yes Network now and they were going to help promote the book. And it was such a great picture from a mechanical standpoint. I think when you can catch a delivery, the photographer did a great job with that picture. And I'm almost landing and, you know, I'm in the middle. It kind of shows how long my stride was. And I was only, I'm only about six feet tall. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not the prototypical six foot four type picture that you see nowadays. And, the, and, and it also caught the mechanics of, the shoulder was, was closed still while I was almost landing. And I just thought from a mechanical standpoint, that was the best picture I ever saw. And, and uh, you know, we were talking about pitching and the mechanics of pitching. And I thought that cover kind of, you know, that, that particular picture, you know, kind of covered exactly what I was trying to talk about with regard to mechanics and pitching. And, and there's also that little subtle defiance, too, because that picture shows the way you wrap the ball, which was a lot of guys in the Royals situ you know, told you that that's not the proper way, right? Uh, but you felt yes, like you... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was, a, you know, I relied on a lot of risk. You know, I really bent my wrist and really got my, you know, I got everything I could in, into every pitch, you know, a, a long stride, a drop and drive style, and a kind of a real snapping wrist. I really believed in, in wrist snap and trying to generate as much extra spin on the baseball as I could. So two parts. As a Yankee fan, I don't mind the cover at all. And it actually <laughs> reminds me, it reminds me of, actually, I have a poster under my bed that I actually just uncovered this week of the mechanics that they took of a similar shot and and picture by picture they went through steps one of five of you breaking down your mechanics and that was just reminded me of the picture but what I wanted to get back to was talking about getting on the same page with your catcher and in some cases your infielders in the in the instance of last night's Yankee game Domingo Herman had been pitching well he had gotten seven of his first eight outs by strikeout but he was still struggling in the third and Gleyber Torres comes over and kind of shakes his shoulders and maybe reminds him to keep it loose and I wanted to know in your perspective and your experiences did any of those you know meetings on the mound actually help you or were you the kind that just wanted the ball back in your hands so you could throw it? You know as I evolved later in my career I probably got a little more grumpy you know and probably uh, didn't want uh, that sort of a thing as much but when I was with the Mets you know, Keith Hernandez was fantastic. I mean, he would just give me a look or a fist bump, and he was constantly screaming at me from first base, you know, about certain situations or, or whether a guy was late on my fastball. And, and he would give me advice on what, what, what pitch to throw next. And it was, it, Keith was the best. Uh, he, he would always pump me up. He always believed in me. And, you know, I can't tell you how much I really enjoyed playing for the Mets and how, how lucky I feel by having Gary Carter as really my first full-time catcher and Keith Hernandez at first base, kind of helping me through, you know, situations that I was going through for the first time. So I was really fortunate. So, yeah, to answer your question, you know, I'll take Keith Hernandez at first base any day of the week. Uh, he, was, he was great for me, and I, I loved his energy on the field. So, Dave, you've talked a lot in this interview and a lot in the book about analytics. You're into that to spin rate and things like that. At what point, though, do you feel you have to sort of stop looking at the analytics and just go out and do? 
That's a great point. Uh, you know, once again, it, it, it comes down to the personality of the pitcher. Some some players can handle information, and some can't. And, and anything that takes away from the feel of the game uh, is 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 detrimental. Because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing: is, is feeling your way through your delivery, uh, feeling your way through an at bat, uh, reading the hitter yourself, what you see with your own eyes. Uh, to me, is still very very important. Uh, I like the analytics for practice, off-season, in-between starts. I think it could really help, uh, especially if you're going through a slump. Uh, it can show you, uh, it can give you more information as to, to what you're doing and why and whether you need to correct it or maybe you don't need to correct it. Maybe you're just pitching in bad luck. Uh, you know, to me, the luck factor that we can quantify now through analytics is, is really important. Uh, hitters and pitchers can both use it, whether you're pitching or hitting in bad luck. We can now quantify it. We can say, hey, your exit velocity is really good. You're just not getting anything to show for it. Or conversely on the mound, hey, you're making good pitches and they're blooping them in. Don't change a thing. Stay right where you are. The results will come. And that kind of goes back to Joan Cohn, you know, the, the sabermetrician. That's what she thought way back in, in Little League was, you know, hey, you're okay. You're due. It's going to turn around for you. You're doing the right thing. Keep working hard. So, yeah, you know, and to answer the question, I still believe in feel. I still think that's the most important thing. Our time's limited, and we spent a lot of time with, with the Met stuff, but I, I want to close because, you know, Yankee years obviously were great. Uh, the, you described the way, you know, George Steinbrenner closed the deal to, to sign you after that year that you were traded from a phone booth in Tampa. I thought it was fascinating. So I felt the best way to get through the Yankee years would be almost to play word association. I'm going to throw out a couple of names or a couple of topics and just tell me Mark the first thing that lot, comes, the way, you know, comes into yes. your mind, all right? Okay, I'm in. All right, 147 pitches. Oh, a slow death. (laughs) (laughs) Do you go back and think about that, the way the game is played now, and know that you would have been, after seven innings, out of that game with a 4-2 lead, and and you probably win that game and go to the World Series? Yeah, especially with a young guy named Mariano Rivera down there in the bullpen, and nobody really knew uh, what we had. So, yeah, I mean, you can't help but think about those things that, you know, what ifs, what if it was, it was different, what, you know. I'm, I'm, certainly, uh, you know, the last 30 pitches of that game were under extreme duress, and I was extremely fatigued. So, you know, it, it paid, I paid a toll for that. Uh, I ended up with an aneurysm in my arm after that game in the next spring. Well, let's go to the next name on the list, then. Dr. Stuart Hershon. Dr. Stuart Hershon is the one who made me go take the second angiogram to find that aneurysm. So when he put his job on the line, uh, he was ready to quit the Yankees as their lead physician unless uh, he could convince both George Steinbrenner and me to, to, to find out what the source was of uh, the tingling and discoloration in my fingers that, that, that I was experiencing at that time. Joe Torrey. Oh, Joe Torrey... Um, the most level-headed leader I've ever been around. Uh, he just he handled people so well. He had so many people skills. He had his skill set was off the charts. Great player, uh, manager, uh, broadcaster. I mean, he just really he was the smoothest operator I've ever been around. Derek Jeter, the best turn the page guy player I've ever been around. I, he really took it to heart in terms of it. He was five for five yesterday. Today's a new day. He had already forgotten about it. And if he was 0 for 5 with five strikeouts, he forgot about it. So it was always about next with Derek Jeter. Turn the page. Tomorrow's a new day. 
Um, doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Only thing that matters is right here and right now. Also love the way in the book you describe how he as a rookie kind of changed the way rookies were looked at because he just did everything right. Really fascinating there as well. Paul O'Neill. Mm. Oh, Paul O'Neill, one of the most intense competitors I've ever been around. Uh, he just lived to hit. Uh, when I was pitching during games, I would peek over my left shoulder and he would be in right field practicing his swing. And uh, I would get on him in the dugout and say, do, do I need to give you a little time before I throw the next pitch? You're working on your swing you know, in the middle of the game. So, I mean, we joked a lot with Paul, but that's how intense he was. He was constantly thinking about baseball, constantly thinking about his, his swing. David Wells. Oh, she, misunderstood. You know, really a big-hearted guy, a great competitor who was misunderstood a lot throughout his career, it was uh, perceived as being uh, – you know, maybe not committed or maybe too much of a party animal, but when he showed up to pitch, he was ready to pitch. And, uh, you know, he his story is really remarkable. When you talk about his mother, Attitude Annie, who was the girlfriend of the, the leader of the Hells Angels in San Diego, uh, that's how he grew up. His father wasn't around, and his mom was a strong personality. And as you can imagine, his Little League games were all Harley bikers <laughs> surrounded a Little League field when they come watch him pitch. So think about growing up like that and uh, – you know, you, you can understand a little more about David Wells. Mariano Rivera. Mariano Rivera was the guy we would joke with. It, it, you'd almost want to check his pulse. He was so cool. Ice, ice cool, ice cold, really. His personality, uh, you know, we would joke, uh, you know, that put a mirror under his nose and check and see if he's breathing because nothing ever affected him. He was so cool under pressure. He was just a... Uh, the coolest and ice, you know, ice water in his veins kind of competitor. The the, the most I've ever ever been around. Mel Stottlemyre. Oh, he's the most upbeat and positive coach I've ever been around. I mean, I I never saw Mel in a bad mood. Um, and universally, everybody feels that about Mel. He was so supportive to all of his pitchers. He really felt like he cared about us, and, and he did. He backed it up. Uh, he really he felt it. When you had a bad game, he had a bad game, and. Uh, the next day, it was back to work, and he was back to trying to pump you up. So just uh, from a psychological standpoint, the most positive person I've ever been around. Chili Davis, in respect to your perfect game. I love Chili. Chili was a pro's pro. Uh, he was the one guy that gave me a little moment of levity. I think it was the sixth or seventh inning when Joe Girardi was on my catcher, but he made uh, he was on the base pass when, when the inning ended. So uh, Jorge Posada was the backup catcher, and he was in the bullpen. So there was nobody to warm me up when I went back out for the for the uh, the top of the seventh inning. And Chili Davis grabbed the catcher's glove and went behind home plate, and I just kind of lobbed him in there because I didn't you know I didn't want to air it out and maybe you know make it look bad or maybe you know that he would miss it. And then he got on me in the dugout the next inning. He told me uh, I can't tell you exactly what he said to me, uh, but he told me that he was a catcher in the minor leagues and that my stuff wasn't that good. Go ahead and let it go. And You know, it doesn't sound like much, but when you're in the middle of a, of a perfect game and the anxiety that goes with it, anything can really help. And Chili uh, said the right thing at the right time. Finally, the first thing that comes into your mind when someone mentions David Cohn. Oh, you know, I... I to me, the best compliment you can ever give somebody is that they're a pro's pro, you know, that they really, you know, that I was a player's advocate, and you know, I was proud of my time in the Players Association advocating for players, for players' rights. Uh, you know, somebody like that, that's the way 
that you know that I would like to be uh, you know remembered as a player or as a, as a pros pro and a player's advocate. David, I have to thank you first for giving us a lot of time tonight. The book is outstanding. AJ and I only wish that you would have pushed it back till after Father's Day so right. it wouldn't kill our sales of our book, but that's okay. Um, the book is outstanding. Buy two. That's all. Right. Just buy two. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it's a must for any player who wants to be a pitcher as well as a casual fan who sits and watches a pitcher struggle on the mound and complain and say just throw strikes. Uh, absolutely. Kudos to you and Jack. It's a fabulous book, and we really appreciate you coming on tonight. No, my pleasure. Great interview, guys. Great to talk to you. You got it, David. Be good. Okay, take care. David Cohn, five-time All-Star, five-time world champion. Absolutely great book, full count. Pick it up. As he said, piggyback with uh, a glove story.